Go ahead and turn to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. The Olympics were in Beijing back in 2008, a couple of years after we arrived there, the Summer Olympics. And now I think, as always, China has to be the first in everything. And I think they are the first city, Beijing is the first city to host both the Winter or the Summer Olympics and now the Winter Olympics, I think, in 22. Is it? I'm not sure. Is it 22? And um, the interesting thing is we never get snow. It gets really cold there, but there's absolutely no snow there. So I'm not sure how that's all going to work, but they will, <laughs> they will do it. Um, but as we think about the Olympics, Summer Olympics, races that are there that are run, you know, there's, there's no generic race. Every race, the runner knows, knows two things. He knows how long he's going to have to run, and he knows where the finish line is. There's no race like, well, where is the finish line? Well, you know, that's part of the race. You need to find that. You know, we don't have any races like that now. In the relativistic society that we live in, that's probably coming. But at this point, we don't have that. Every runner knows exactly how long he needs to run. He knows what he needs to do to prepare for that race. And he knows where the finish line is. He knows what's expected of him. He has a plan to achieve the goal, and he trains every day that, so that he will have the strength and the power to succeed. However, the race that we are in, the race of the Christian life, the responsibilities to re represent the creator of the universe. We are known as Christians, followers of Christ, Christian fathers, spiritual leaders and shepherds in the home, Christian mothers teaching and shepherding the children God has placed under our care, Christian students being witnesses to friends or fellow students. All of us should be known as disciple makers, making disciples in the world in which God has placed us. These tasks make the Olympics trivial in importance. The tasks we have been given by our creator are too important to be vague on how we will run the race or the goal that we are trying to achieve. Life is too short. Souls are too precious. God's commands are too great. His glory is too essential for there to be confusion in how we are to minister, what the goal is, or where the resources will come for the completion of the task. When we look around us at all the activity, the energy, the thought, strategies, and money that is expended in the name of Christ and ministry, we need to ask the question, what are we trying to accomplish? Is there a goal, and if there is, is it biblical? Frankly speaking, there are many Christians who are confused about their purpose on this earth. What is their purpose? What is their ministry? Why are they doing what they are doing? Glenn Thompson, who's going to Hawaii, that's how you remember him. Um, I had him in critical thinking. I saw him this morning in the elders meeting, and he looked very, very familiar. But when I was a professor at the college, I had him in 
critical thinking, but I was just so blessed to think, not the fact that he's going to Hawaii, although I want to get to know him much better at this point, really become close friends, but just the idea that there are, there are people sending their, their kids into the military Christian parents with trepidation and wondering, oh, how are they going to do and they don't know that the Lord's arranged a faithful guy who graduated from Master's College to go and to be their chaplain. What a blessing. And I know that Glenn is very clear on what his ministry needs to be there. He's very clear that it needs to be about the gospel. Paul, Paul had no such confusion about what his ministry needs to be that we see in this world. Paul ends chapter 1 of Colossians with a very clear statement in regard to these questions. Let's start there in verse 24. We'll just be looking at the last two verses, but let's start reading there in verse 24. It says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been made manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this text. We're thankful for Paul, for his life, for his ministry, Lord, how he followed Christ, and we can follow Paul as Paul followed Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth today with clarity, Lord, and that, you, that, the, that we would use the words from this text, that we would examine ourselves, that we would examine our ministry so that we may not be wasteful of the blessings, the gifts, all the things that you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, whether we know it or not, we all have, we have all been given a ministry. Whether you're involved in that ministry or not is not the question. We all have been given a ministry. As with Paul, our ministry needs to be centered around the church. He says that in verse 24 as he's talking about Christ's affliction and how that we will be persecuted as Christ was persecuted. He's saying, he mentions the church there, and our ministry needs to be centered around the church. It doesn't mean it needs to be in the church necessarily, but our purpose is to, is to grow the church. Our purpose is to build up the body of Christ. And today I want to look at three questions, ask you three questions to help you examine your ministry so that each of us can accomplish the purpose of God by the methods of God through the power of God. So three questions. The first question is, what is your practice in ministry? What is your practice in ministry? What do you do? And for Paul, 
that is seen in the very beginning of verse 28, where he says, and we proclaim Christ. We proclaim him. That needs to be our practice in ministry. Our practice in ministry needs to be that we are proclaiming Christ. The hymn that refers back to Christ, Christ is not just mentioned in this um, verse. It's mentioned throughout the whole first chapter. It's mentioned really throughout the book of Colossians. The book is unsurpassed in its exaltation of Christ. As Paul profiles the many, many of the great truths about Christ and thereby preeminently exalts Jesus Christ in this book. Who do we proclaim? Chapter tells us we proclaim the one through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, the one by whom and for whom all things were created, the one through whom all things hold together, the one who has been given the preeminence over all things, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt the one through whom we have been reconciled, the one through whom the great mystery of the ages is revealed, Christ in us, the hope of glory. You know, we kind of just rattle off those things that we have in Christ, the day that we're, we're redeemed, forgiveness, we have forgiveness of our sins. I was up in South Dakota after the, the wedding in North Colorado. We, we went to different churches before we came back here this week and up in South Dakota at Greg Dennison's church. And he is a part of a part of Grace Advance. And his background is math like mine. And he he teaches. He teaches a couple classes at a Christian school there in math. And he said one of the classes, one of the days that he teaches, he calls it the gospel and math or something. But he says he has the students calculate their sin. And so he just says, you know, suppose that you sin, you live 70 years, 80 years, and you sin every day. Well, how many sins would that be? And, and so they're calculating that up. And then, well, how about if you sin every hour? And he gets down to every minute. And, and he comes up with something like 57 million sins. I mean, can, can you just, just let that sink in for a second? And, and really, it's not every minute. We're continually sinning. 57 million sins that Christ has redeemed, that Christ has paid for. And so this, this book and this chapter exalts Christ. One author says, Christ is the glory of God. His blood-soaked cross is the blazing center of that glory. By it, he bought for us every blessing temporal and eternal, and we don't deserve any. He bought them all. Because of Christ's cross, God's elect are destined to be sons of God. Because of his cross, the wrath of God is taken away. Because of his cross, all guilt is removed and sins are forgiven and perfect righteousness is imputed to us and the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Spirit and we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul's habitual practice of proclaiming or telling others about Christ, it had both a positive and a negative aspect to that. See, the negative aspect first where it says that we proclaim Christ through warning. 
We proclaim Christ through warning. What is our practice? Our practice is to proclaim Christ in our ministry. How do we proclaim Christ? Well, firstly, we proclaim Christ through warning, through admonishing, through confronting. To admonish is to confront someone for a wrong done, correcting wrong thinking, or setting the mind of someone in proper order. The Greek word is from which we get the term nosthetic counseling, counseling in view of sin, counseling away from sin, confronting people not with human wisdom, but with the word of God. Any proclamation of Jesus Christ, any preaching or individual discipling that does not mention, that makes no mention of sin is missing this vital element. This part of proclaiming Christ is extremely difficult and often avoided or neglected. It's hard to confront people in their sin or to do it at least in the right way. I'm sure you've heard the saying, it is much easier to talk about someone than to talk to someone. It's much easier to talk about someone else's sin than it is to talk to that person about that sin. Matthew 18 gives a detailed procedure for how to proclaim Christ through confronting people in their sin. It is possible the most disobeyed command in Scripture. We'd much rather tell or talk about a person's sin with other people than confront that person. We, we are responsible for confronting every man, every individual person. The singular is used to show that each person individually was the object of the apostles' care. Ultimately, Paul was not focused on numbers, but on each individual person God placed in his path. Now, where does this start for us? Well, I really believe it. It starts in our home. It starts with our spouses. It starts with our children's. The same idea is in Ephesians 6, 4, when it talks about confronting your children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do you do this right with your family, with your wife and kids? If you will allow me to exaggerate a bit, it seems like we either never do this or we always do this in a proud condescending, I'm the only one doing anything right around here way. Galatians 6.1 says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We are to warn or confront brothers and sisters in the Lord in a loving, self-examining, gracious way with a spirit of humbleness and gentleness with a singular purpose in mind. When I remember we were in, when I was in China with Rodney, or when Rodney was in China, he's not there anymore, if you, if you didn't know. But um, <laughs> he came, he's gone. <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> Thought maybe the rapture or something. Um, the, the, uh, he had, I remember meeting up with him, and he was telling me this, this story, well, there's this guy that he was meeting with, and he would often meet with him, and, and he had waited for him 15 minutes on the subway. And, and this was happening quite frequently. And, and he said, you know, I really wanted to tell this guy about this, but I really felt I would just be doing it out of frustration with him. And so I would wait and do it another time. 
I think it was right after that that the track was out and you saved all the people on the subway, right? You said that as well, I think. Okay. But, but what, is our, what is our purpose? That's, that's the issue. It's not so much, oh, that person just confronts a lot. No, it's how do we do it? What's our purpose for doing it? What's our purpose for doing it with our kids? Is it just frustration or with our spouse? Or is it that we want to see them conform to the image of Christ? It's not, we, we check our heart and we're careful in the way that we do this. This is the purpose of Scripture, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I checked out the five different Chinese versions that we have on the Chinese Bible study toolbox, and they use five different words for that, meaning complete. The Word of God makes us complete. It makes us competent or qualified. It makes us accomplished. It makes us equipped. It makes us appropriately equipped. All we need is the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and that's all we need. And each of us hopefully have those two things. The problem comes, some of us don't have the Holy Spirit. Some of us haven't repented. The other problem is some of us aren't in the Word of God. We come here and, and we hear it, but we're not really in it. And the Holy Spirit, in a sense, has nothing to use to help us because we don't have the Word of God, and we're not in the Word of God. And so as we proclaim Christ, we do that through confronting. We do that through warning. Secondly, we do that, we proclaim Christ through teaching, or if I can, just through sharing. Dr. MacArthur says not only does this speak of proclaiming Christ from the pulpit, it also addresses less formal speech in our everyday lives. We are to be influencing the understanding of every individual in both formal and informal settings. May our teaching and may our sharing be patterned after Ezra, Ezra 7.10 tells us, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. We need to be in the word of God. We need to be studying it. We need to be listening to it. We need to be meditating on it. And then then we need to be using it ourselves as a verse that I noticed as I was, we were doing this, this verse and outlining it in, in one of the seminary classes that I taught, the, um, I noticed Matthew 23, don't have to turn this, but, but Jesus says the following, I hadn't seen this before, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and I should think he would be, the next thing would be, so don't listen to what they say. But he says, no, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. We are to practice and observe whatever the Pharisees tell us. But then what? But not what they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They had wisdom. You are here, blessed. What a blessing to sit in this morning's service. But you are so blessed here with good teaching and knowledge but is that transforming into a life that exalts Christ, that proclaims Christ not only verbally, but with your decision-making and, and with, with what you, your hobbies and what you talk about? 
because that knowledge needs to translate into that. Otherwise, it's just knowledge. And it's just like what the Pharisees had. John Piper says it this way, if we look like our lives are devoted to getting and maintaining things, we will look like the world, and that will not make Christ look great. He will look like a religious side interest that may be useful for escaping hell in the end, but doesn't make much difference in what we live and love here. He will not look like an all-satisfying treasure, and that will not make others glad in God. Not to show people the all-satisfying God is not to love them, to make them feel good about themselves when they were made to feel good about seeing God is like taking someone to the Alps and locking them in, the room, in a room full of mirrors. Do you adore Christ? Are you, can people tell that you are satisfied with Christ? You can see the emphasis on this passage is on every individual man, every person, every contact that we have. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. One commentator says, one could not have been a member of this apostolic band for long without realizing that Paul, like his master, cared for the ultimate well-being of individual men and women. We are to be doing this. We are to be teaching. We are to be admonishing. We are to be doing this with all wisdom. We are to apply the word of God wisely as we shepherd people with the truth. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In a world that we live in where um, all the, as time goes by, more and more fools just despise wisdom. They despise instruction. They despise what, what the word of God stands for. So what is your practice in ministry? You need to proclaim Christ. How? You proclaim Christ through warning. You proclaim Christ through teaching. Secondly, what is your purpose for ministry? What is your purpose for ministry? It's a singular purpose. There's only one goal presented here. That's to present everyone mature in Christ. To present everyone mature in Christ. Our purpose, our goal is not simply salvation. Our goal is to cause each individual to be presented to Christ as a complete, mature, fully grown Christian who has reached their maximum earthly potential. Is this your goal as you interact at home, as you interact with your husband, with your wife, as you interact with your children? Is this your goal with the people sitting next to you here in mainstream, in the conversations that you have and I'm preaching this because this is a struggle for me. It's so easy to just come and talk about the week and the job and the game or whatever it might be. And it might be a little bit easier for me because it's ministry, and so I talk about ministry in China. But ultimately, that's not the goal. The goal is to talk about Christ. The goal is to proclaim Christ. And in our interactions, to be encouraging one another in our walk with Christ. We look there at verse 22. This was the goal that Christ had as he died 
Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God's work of reconciliation in Christ and Paul's active ministry had the same end in view, namely the perfection of each man in Christ on the final day. Life is about presenting every individual person that God has placed in our care as complete in Christ. It is doing all that you can to see that your spouse, children, friends, disciples, Sunday school students, VBS kids, your fellow brothers and sisters in church will be presented in Christ, will be presented to Christ as complete, mature, fully grown Christians. That's our goal. That's the goal of, that Paul had. That's the goal of the Holy Spirit and that God has for each of us is that we are proclaiming Christ, that we have the goal in our interactions of presenting, of helping so that someone's maturing in Christ, that someday that person can be presented to Christ as a mature believer. So what do we do? We proclaim Christ. How? Through confronting and teaching. Why? What's the purpose? To present every man complete in Christ. It sounds tiring, and it is. It's very tiring. Just ask your pastors, right? Ask Rich how tiring you people are, okay? <laughs> just get him started on that. He didn't say anything on I just, okay. I'm amazed at Rich and Carlos and just the busyness of their lives, and yet they are here and they're preaching and they're shepherding. But it's tiring. So where is your strength in the midst of ministry? That's the third question. Where is your strength in the midst of ministry? Where does the strength and power come from to do this? There's a Chariots of Fire, great movie. One scene there, Eric Little, he's just running, and he's kind of preaching or, or talking to the crowd around him, and, and he says, where does the power come from to see the race to its end? And then he says, from within. I don't know if the writers of that really knew what they were talking about, but that is true. What was it that set Paul apart in what he was able to accomplish with his life? Colossians 1.29 Last verse in chapter 1, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So where is your strength in the midst of ministry? First of all, agonize to the point of exhaustion. You agonize to the point of exhaustion. Paul spoke of his suffering in verse 24 to begin this section. The goal was so important to Paul he worked with great intensity, with great effort. He did everything humanly possible. The Greek word translated labor was used for work, which left one so weary, it was as if the person had taken a beating. The second word is even stronger, and from which we get our word agonize, is used for the effort put forward in an athletic event or military battle. You know, we all have different jobs, and there's different things that tire us out, but really in ministry, nothing can be more exhausting than just 
working with people and shepherding people and dealing with issues. We have an issue in our church, and I've been going back and forth with Skype with the pastor and the assistant pastor and just dealing with that. And, and it's just exhaust, exhaust, exhausting. I can't even say it. It's so exhausting, <laughs> right? But just that, that work is tiresome. But it's, it's that suffering that Paul would start out in verse 24 saying, I rejoice. I rejoice that I can suffer for Christ. Both words designate the intense labor and effort of Paul towards the one goal of presenting every man complete in Christ. Paul struggled, labored to the point of exhaustion. He agonized. This speaks of self-discipline. You see this as he's, he spends three over three years in Ephesus, and then he meets with these Ephesian elders, and he can say things like this. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul, Paul, then he would say, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So he agonized, he worked, he labored, both, both teaching in the church and going house to house and discipling. That was Paul's ministry. Christianity is not a place for lazy people, but for high, the highly disciplined. I see this and I'm reminded of this. I don't use them much anymore, but taxi cabs. I get into a taxi cab in Beijing, and, and how long do you work? Well, I work 12 hours. I work 14 hours. I work 16 hours every day. I'm thinking, wow, he does that to make money. How much more should I be working and agonizing? But is that, is that, is that it? Is you just work as hard as you can? No. The second thing is you, you firstly agonize the point of exhaustion. Secondly, you rely on Christ's sufficient power. It's so neat the, the pronoun we see in this verse. For this I toil, verse 29, struggling with all, and I just, you just automatically get my energy. No, it's not my energy. It's his energy. Struggling with all Christ's energy. Paul knew who energized him. Paul is keenly aware that it is ultimately not by his own strength, but through the supernatural working of Christ within him. Paul can agonize the point of exhaustion because of Christ's sufficient power working in him. The power at our disposal is more than adequate for the need. Through it, we are given the capability to be faithful ministers as defined in these verse, verses to achieve the goal of presenting every individual complete in Christ. You see this same tension in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So Paul sees the finish line. He knows how to get there, and he knows from whom his power comes. Paul knew exactly what was the practice, the purpose, and the power of the faithful minister. He suffered none of the confusion of so many today. What ministry has God given you? Not what ministry are you doing, but what ministry are you responsible for in God's eyes? 
Are you proclaiming Christ through admonishing and teaching each individual that has been placed in your life? Just as we close here, just some practical thoughts. How do we do this? I think the first way we do this is, is, is we, we get a sense of humility. Paul, Paul isn't saying, oh, this is all about me. He's not saying, I, I strive and that's all. No, we realize we need Christ. We need his power. We need to rely on him. Secondly, we need his word, not just hearing it once a week or a couple times a week, but we need to be in his word. We need to be meditating on his word so that, in a sense, proclaiming Christ is just a natural outflow of our lives. It's a natural outflow of our speech that we just talk about Christ. You know those type of individuals. You've been around them, and they just talk about Christ. There's nothing forced. It's just part of them, and we need to cultivate that in our lives, and make sure that we are reminding each other of this. Again, a, a quote from um, a quote from Piper. He says this: "I need to hear this message again and again because I drift into a peacetime mindset. As certainly as rain falls down and flames go up, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love." I start to, start to call earth home. Before you know it, I am calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached peoples drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do and not what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again towards a wartime mindset. We need to have a wartime mindset. And if you think I'm a missionary up here thinking I'm okay because I'm a missionary, yeah, I can be just as lazy and just as unfocused in Beijing as you can here in California. But it's something that I want to be part of my life. I want people to see there's... Someone has asked, you know, why don't people ask about the hope that lieth within us, like Corinthians talks about it. And, it. and the comment that was made is because it looks like we're hoping in the same thing that they're hoping in. We're not hoping in Christ. We waste our lives when we do not pray and think and dream and plan and work towards magnifying God in all spheres of life. God created us, created us for this to live our lives in a way that makes him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that he really is. And so just as we close a paragraph here about missions, because that's what missions is about. The ultimate aim of world missions is that God would create by his word worshipers who glorify his name through glad-hearted faith and obedience. Glad-hearted faith and obedience. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for 
your goodness, your faithfulness. We're thankful for the clarity of your inspired word. And whether we are missionaries to a foreign country or we are, we are disciple makers in a foreign country or we are disciple makers here in Southern California, Lord, let us be faithful to the ministry that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.